This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Meme Lord Takeover episode of Slate money your guide to the business and finance news of the week i'm felix salmon of axios i'm here with emily peck of axios hello hello with elizabeth spires hello and guys we have the perfect guest on for this week welcome matt levine hi thanks for having me matt levine you need no introduction but introduce yourself anyway who are you uh i'm a columnist for bloomberg opinion i write a daily ish newsletter called money stuff recently it's been elon musk stuff and i just published a long article in bloomberg business week about crypto which is awesome everyone should read it go out buy it in print if you can because it looks beautiful in print those those copies are going to be scarce collector's items you should make them into nfts obviously please don't make that joke <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you're the 40th person to make that Sorry. joke this week first to do it on slate money mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. Uh, We're going to talk about that article, obviously. We have so much to talk about. We're going to talk about the cryptos. We're going to talk about Credit Suisse, which is breaking itself up. Uh, We are, of course, going to talk about Elon Musk buying Twitter, which is now official. It has happened. Twitter is now owned by Elon Musk. It is a fun show. You're going to love it. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so Matt, it finally fucking happened. I know. I was not expecting it to have happened by now. (laughs) Recording on Friday morning, I figured it would be like I figured it'd be four twenty, but you know, exactly. He he would he would do the deal at four twenty on Friday. In fact, he did it a day early on Thursday. Yeah, not what I predicted. He was he was unusually swift, and then by Thursday evening the top three executives of Twitter had all been fired. And Twitter is, as of this recording and as of listening to this podcast, now wholly owned by a meme lord. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it does make sense that, like, the person who values using Twitter the highest would now own Twitter. I mean, that doesn't really make sense, but, like, it makes a kind of sense. (laughs) Like he loves I mean, Twitter. U- using using Twitter is free. Owning Twitter costs, you know, forty four billion dollars. It's like forty four. But, but four, forty four billion dollars plus a free bank account gets you onto Twitter. I mean, plus a free Twitter account gets you onto Twitter. But he's very very rich, and like, don't you have things that you find annoying about Twitter that you're like, ah, I would change this, right? Like, if you just owned it, you could just do it. So. That was my original thesis of this deal is he just like, you know, yeah. he like wanted an edit button. He's like, I'll be to pay $44 billion for an edit button. Which I guess, so this is one of my questions for you. It's like, he, he agreed to pay $44 billion. Um, then it rapidly became obvious that he was overpaying. He tried to get out of the deal. He wound up doing the deal in the end. Um, one of my theories all along was that the reason he kind of wanted to get out of the deals because he didn't have that much money. Once the margin loan fell through and he had to come up with like $33 billion of equity and he only managed to find $7 billion from friends and family, um, that's like a non-trivial amount of cash even for Elon. But he seems to have found it. Yeah, Matt, what what did we know about where he found the money? Not under a couch cushion, from a so we don't fully know. I mean, most of it presumably comes from selling stock in Tesla, either in recent months, you know, sort of around the time he signed the deal, or uh, earlier, where he, you know, just you know, putting money in the bank, or conceivably even last week. Like, there's some speculation he might have done some selling. Um, I mean, sorry, not last week, this week, uh, which would be disclosed next week if he, if he had in fact sold any. Um, some of the money came from uh, friends and family. It's not clear how much, you know, and back when the deal was on, he disclosed $7 billion of commitments from, you know, venture capitalists and Saudis and his buddies. But um, it's not clear that all of those came through. And it seems pretty clear that he got other money too. Like other rich people kicked in some money that has been sort of reported, but has not yet been disclosed. And 
I don't know if it ever will be, right? Like there's no real obligation to disclose it anymore. I assume that the number that he got in equity co-investors was kind of around $7 billion, but it could have been more. It could have been less. My my favorite theory, which I don't actually believe, but it would be amazing, was that he paid for a huge chunk of Twitter with Dogecoin. Um <laughs> which there there was this massive Dogecoin whale wallet, which at one point had like over $20 billion in it. And it's now been all sold off. I was looking at it. Um, and all of those Dogecoin have been sold. And the total profit in that wallet was about $9.5 billion. And the total amount of money that the person who owned the wallet or the institution that owned the wallet put in was like over $350 million they spent on Dogecoin. So like that wasn't just someone who got lucky. You know, that was a very rich person or a very rich institution buying all that Dogecoin and then selling it all at an absolutely enormous profit. Was that Elon? Probably not, but it'd be very funny if it was. That would be amazing. That would be a great way to buy Twitter with your Dogecoin profits. <laughs> and so I feel like for a while now going forward, there's going to be a lot of like conspiracy theor- theorizing going on about who Elon is really beholden to with Twitter and 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 why it'll matter and all that. But aren't there just some banks too kind of behind the scenes? Yeah, the, the, Twitter is now a highly leveraged company. He needs to pay, what is it, like $1.5 billion a year in just in interest expense, which is more than Twitter's free cash flow. So good luck with that. So usually these things kind of all end in disaster, not not for Elon Musk, but just for the company itself. It's just the layoffs, the cost cutting, blah, 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 blah. It all ends in kind of the bankruptcy court or something. So this is uh, this is something, Matt, which you've written about, and I, I love this so much, um, is basically what happens if Twitter defaults on its debt? Um, are the banks going to come after Elon for, you know, are they going to try and like foreclose on Twitter or do they value their relationship with Elon too much to do that? So, so Twitter has a lot of cash. Like, it's a weird deal in that. Like, ordinarily, you do an LBO, you use the cash on the balance sheet to pay some of the price, and you operate on very thin margins. Like this one, Twitter is keeping a lot of cash, so it's not going to go bankrupt like next year if it doesn't have enough cash flow to pay interest. It's got some cushion. Uh, what happens if it stops paying interest? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I would love to see it because I think that. So some of the weird dynamics here are like the client is Elon Musk and you don't want to, if you're the lender, you don't want to annoy the richest person in the world, not only because he's a good client, but also because he is uh, very irritating in litigation and you don't want to get involved with that. If you foreclose, the thing that you own is Twitter with like Elon Musk being mad at you. And do you want that? And the other <laughs> the other issue is that right, like as of now, the banks are making noises that they're not selling this debt. So ordinarily you do an LBO. Banks underwrite the debt and they sell it to, uh, you know, the sort of investors who buy LBO debt. And if the company falls into distress, that debt migrates to the hands of the distressed debt investors of the world who are very much in the business of like fighting tooth and nail to take over companies and try to extract value from them. Uh, right now, the debt is is supposedly being held by his relationship banks like Morgan Stanley, who are not in the business of fighting to the death with Elon Musk to take over the company that he owns. So I don't know. My gut is that there will not actually be a problem servicing this debt. And if there is, the banks will do a lot to make things easier rather than try to take Twitter from an angry Elon Musk, because that just doesn't seem very fun. They, they, they will, well, you know, what's it called? Delay and Extend pray, and pretend. Extend yeah. and pretend. Or just kind of r- r- roll over the debt in one way or another. Um, rather than force it to to a crunch point. That makes sense. And it also makes sense to me from Elon's perspective, if he's already put $20 billion into this company or more, um, you know, what's another $1 billion? Right, like he could just pay the interest out of his own pocket, essentially. And and it seems crazy to throw away all this money. I kind of am starting to think that Elon Musk is going to turn Twitter around. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm getting optimistic. <laughs> Yeah. Like well, let's, first let's of all, yeah, like his his purchase has has made all the shareholders lots of money. The fifty four twenty was good for them, so that seems good. Yeah, the the the, the, the exiting the exiting CEO Parag Agrawal, like he's exiting with a large swag bag of cash. 
Yeah, he was fired at nighttime, but who cares? He's like a big old millionaire now. Like, so, I mean, and and now um, Kanye is back as of Friday morning onto Twitter. Wait, well, he, he never, never actually left. left. Oh, okay. So he's there. I don't know. More people are going to be there, like rubbernecking the train crash or just checking it out, I think. So that'll be good, right? It's an advertising business. You want more users. They're going to show up because they're excited about Elon. People say they're quitting, but they're saying it on Twitter. You know, you know who was posting memes on Twitter on Friday morning, although he did delete it quite quickly? Larry Summers. <laughs> I'm not making. He he posted a Pokemon meme as a meme as a reply to Paul Krugman, um, which is very un-Larry Summers. But you have to remember that Larry is on the board of Square, which is Jack Dorsey's company. Jack Dorsey is BFF with Elon Musk. You know these circles are tiny. Yeah, it's a popular place to be, and I don't think that's changing. I think it's going to become more popular now that the billionaire owns the playground. Everyone's going to want to show up and play. So maybe it's all going to be good. I think it, it depends on whether he turns it into a cesspool. If it becomes kind of unsustainable for certain people, then... Then what? I, well, I think they leave, you know? Right. right, but is that is that bad? Like, I mean, you know, if, if, if the, you know, if the woke snowflakes leave, <laughs> is... is, is Elon going to cry? Well, it depends on what it does to the business. How many of them leave? Again, I'll say, I read a lot of people talking about leaving Twitter on Twitter today. So that kind of tells you what you need to know about that. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to leave if, like, Donald Trump comes back. But I think that, like, if, in fact, he cuts, like, you know, moderation to the bone and it just becomes all crypto spammers, then people yeah. will leave. But, you know, he has said that he like he bought it to get rid of the crypto spammers. So it's a little unclear what he's actually going to do. My sense is that there will be some like marginal right wing decisions, but like the basic feel of the product won't change that much. And so people won't actually quit. But what do I know? Well, I mean, you do know quite a lot. Matt, because you have been written about writing about almost nothing else for about a year now. <laughs> <laughs> But but we should, I mean, we should actually talk about what the other thing that you, you know, managed to toss off in your spare time, which was 40,000 words of explanation of crypto. Like, yeah, that took you, that took you a couple of months, right? You're not a complete robot who can do that overnight. No, I did not do that overnight. That took, <laughs> that, that sort of started in, um, it started like over the summer because I was like, wow. Summer's always slow. What am I going to have to write about? I might as well take some time off to write about crypto, and then you know. So, so this is this is the the second great business week takeover. Paul Ford did the first one on code. You've done the second one on crypto. The idea is that it's like a timeless issue that you can keep on your bookshelf and refer to as a sort of reference um, thing. That's just if you want to understand what crypto is, just read this and you will understand it. And I think you did that unbelievably well. Um, with great brio and obviously that's a gamble when you're like it's a timeless reference on this thing that's existed for 10 years and then crashed right like it, I don't know. I, one of the interesting things about crypto to me is is how slowly it actually evolves um a lot of people like to compare it to you know crypto is like the early days of the internet but the fact is that crypto has been developing much more slowly than the early days of the internet you know that if you go back and read the piece I wrote in 2013 about Bitcoin, some of it's out of date. Most of it kind of isn't, you know? And um, and I think, honestly, the what you wrote about the, the broad structure of crypto, how it works, why it exists, is going to be true and it's going to be, like, basically not out of date for at least a couple of years. I hope so. I mean, like, the... The, the the risk that we talked about for it being out of date was like, you know, crypto crash from sort of like a three trillion-ish market cap to a one trillion-ish market cap like over this year. Like if it went much further down, then people are like, I don't need a business week issue on this, you know, trivial niche subject. So, yeah, so that that one was interesting. Like is, is that the reason why Business Week devoted an entire issue of this, why you devoted your entire summer to writing it is just because – there is a metric fuck ton of money in this and therefore it is important. I've always been kind of like an efficient markets guy. And I'm like, if like enough smart people are investing their money in it, like there's like, who am I to say there's nothing there? 
right? I spent a lot of time talking about specific crypto things being like, wow, there's nothing there. But like, yeah, as a as a sort of rough indicator of like importance and interest, the fact that there's a, t- a ton of money in it is interesting. And frankly, if it's like not important, then the fact that there's a ton of money in it is even more interesting. Yeah, that's the difference between Felix, you writing about it in 2013 and Matt writing about it in 2022 is like crypto is here. Well, I mean, when I wrote about it in 2013, the news peg was, oh, my God, the market cap of Bitcoin has just passed a billion dollars. This is completely insane. And it was like it just blew everybody's mind that this weird crypto thing could be worth a billion dollars. Um, yeah, now and now people are paying nine billion dollars in Dogecoin for Twitter. <laughs> well, exactly. Now, like literally, you can have a Dogecoin wallet with twenty-one. One person can have a Dogecoin wallet with twenty-one twenty-one billion dollars in it, and kind of that's accepted as normal. And yeah, you know, that's the thing; it's accepted as normal now. It's part of the it's system. Part, it's part of the the background noise. Yeah, right, Matt. Now, like, it's not going away. There's been a big crash. There's been crypto winter. But I think you say in the piece, like seems to be sticking around it's worth doing the big story yeah i mean that's my sense like people you know like it is is now sort of like a through the cycle thing where like obviously a lot a lot a lot of activity in crypto like you know a year ago is like people very naively betting that these lines always go up but uh then they went down a lot and you know people are still around and people are still you know investing in it and people are still like you know building projects and stuff and so there's still like uh there's still something there even after like the the sort of worst of the speculative frenzy came out. Although, you know, the the big message of your piece is that there's not much there there. Beyond purely sort of self-referential financial speculation, the amount of real there there is is way lower than all the people I was talking to in 2013 would have predicted at this point. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. I mean, when you were talking about like crypto moving more slowly than the internet, like, I, like, I think that there is a hype cycle, you know, even as of a year ago, that was like, this is as much of a general purpose technology as the internet. This will transform every aspect of our lives. And I think that like where I come to in the piece is that this is like a much more narrow purpose technology and it's like a financial technology. And as a person who writes about finance, I think that's interesting. And I think there are um, valuable things you can do with financial technology, but like, it's not gonna change every aspect of your life the way like, you know, having all of the world's information in your pocket does. Yeah, that's what was really interesting about your piece. You were like, we had a real world for a long time, and then the financial system kind of grew along with it, and that's the financial system and the that we kind of know and think is real. <clears throat> and now we have this like internet world, and there's this crypto system growing along alongside it. And then I was kind of thinking like, yeah, we don't, I mean, we do need the financial system and all the bankers and stuff, but they're kind of just like soul sucking. We don't really need them <laughs> for the real world as much. Um, and Your words, not mine. <laughs> right, right. Not yours. I love the bankers. Bloomberg. <laughs> they're all great, obviously. They're, they're, we need them to have our homes and our, turn the lights on the small businesses, of course. Yeah, no, but, I mean, like, like in all seriousness, I think that like, like the financial system operates in the background of like the real economy and, and, and like adds incremental value. And like, you know, I used to sell derivatives and I was like, you know, like companies are building cures for cancer and the way they can do that is by selling convertible bonds. And I like hedge those convertible mm-hmm. bonds. Um, and I think there's like truth to that. And I think like, you know, building a better financial system is not a trivial goal mm-hmm. um, and, and can potentially like be good for the world. But not in a way that like you feel every day in your in your ordinary life. But but this is to be clear, the the the, the other side of that bet. When you're saying like it's not actually being part of our day to day life, you are taking the other side of the bet that Mark Zuckerberg is taking, right? With his massive pivot to well, sort of. The I metaverse. mean, like yeah, like sort of. Like you can you like there's like a the the concept of the metaverse and the concept of like crypto and web three are like entangled with each other, but it's not, they're not like identical. Right. I mean, like Mark Zuckerberg is not saying the things that crypto people love to say about like, you know, owning your own information and sort of like having portable, like NFTs that, that like track your attributes in the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg is like, come to our, you know, 
walled garden product and like use our metaverse, right? Like those are different, like, like his metaverse is not like all that, you know, built around crypto true believer ideas. Did you think also do, like, yeah, I'm probably taking the other side of the bat, <laughs> but yeah. But do you, do you think it's possible that, that the Mark Zuckerberg metaverse could become what Mark Zuckerberg seems to think it will become without crypto more broadly becoming a important part of day-to-day life for most of us. Yeah, I think it could. I mean, I think that like, you know, like the internet exists and then you build these like walled garden, you know, Facebook products on top of it. Right. And like, I think that to Mark Zuckerberg, the bet is like something like some sort of metaverse will exist. And he wants to kind of build the walled garden first. Right. I'm not sure he put it that way. And I'm not sure I'm even right about how I'm characterizing him because like, I don't know how, what he's thinking, but like, it seems to me that like the Facebook bet is on we need to own the next like walled garden of like the internet or whatever succeeds the internet. And, uh, maybe that will work. And the, you know, meta meta product will be the, the, the sort of place where everyone goes to have meetings and like walk around without legs. And maybe in fact, it will be a more, you know, diverse, like, you know, competitive metaverse, in which crypto will serve some function to sort of like link between bits of the metaverse. I think talking about all this, like just feels very abstract because like, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg metaverse is like, you know, 20 teens logging on at night. And it's just not like the guy, I don't, I don't, I don't well, really his, know his, what that vision is because yeah, it's I mean, very his, early to his it. prior vision was, was Libra, wasn't it? He tried to create his own crypto. Oh yeah. Metaverse. No, I mean like, like I, I, I'm, I'm sort of speculating about Facebook's belief in walled gardens. And obviously they have talked about crypto and they have hired crypto people. Um, but like Libra was also like, you know, it's a crypto project that is like a little bit owned by Facebook, though they wouldn't say that, but it's like, it has elements of centralization that, uh, that, that don't necessarily fit with like the sort of classic crypto ethos. So, so I want to come in here and do a little pivot and just basically say that the reason Libra failed, which I think is generally accepted is that it ran straight into a wall of regulators who wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. And they were like, fuck off. And then it, and then all of the big companies like Stripe and MasterCard and everyone who had like initially bought into it were like, we're not going to piss off our regulators. So they left and then there was not, and then, and then it was empty and it died. Um, One of the themes sort of, I would say like behind your story, it's not like super explicit in your story, but you you touch on it from time to time, is that a huge amount of crypto activity is basically just regulatory arbitrage. It's people trying to do financial things without having to get regulated by existing financial regulators. And isn't that bad? Um. So, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think it's like one thing that I read about a lot is that like, there are, there are like two ways to be regulated in crypto. One is like, you're a big existing company like Facebook and you're like, I have an idea for a really safe, well-regulated crypto product, like this stable coin that I want to issue called Libra. And then you go to a regulator and you're like, here is my proposal that's, you know, put together by the top lawyers who all used to work for the regulator. And the regulator says, absolutely not get out of here. And then you don't do it. Right. And the other way to do it is like, you're a teen in like, you know, a non-extradition country and you just program it and do it and you do whatever you want. And like you make, you know, completely ridiculous promises of 18% safe interest. And then like you, you like lose everyone's money and then you don't get in trouble with regulators because like they don't, they haven't talked to you. Right. Like crypto is like, it's not even a regulatory arbitrage. It's like, it's like almost a blind spot and it's so new and busy that the regulators are spending a lot of time dealing with the sort of the people who want to be regulated, the people who come in to talk to them and the people who don't come in to talk to them and don't want to be regulated just aren't regulated because it's like too early to regulate them. Um, so that seems bad. Uh, otherwise, I mean like, so yes, like, like a lot of what I write about is that, uh, like that crypto reinvented shadow banking in a way that is incredibly unregulated and like much worse thought out than like, you know, the shadow banking of 2007. And so like things blew up in ways that are just comical and, um, and like astonishing if you lived through 2008 and you're like, how did, how did people let you do that again? Um, but I also think that like, 
I don't know, like you see the sort of interactions between crypto people and the SEC. And I think that like I am sympathetic to the crypto people's belief that like modern, that, like sort of existing securities regulation and, and, and frankly, existing banking regulation is a little bit, um, you know, stands in the way of innovation in a way that is probably bad in some ways. Are you, are you pro financial innovation? I mean, the, the famous the famous thing from Paul Volcker was the only good financial innovation in the past 20 years has been the ATM. I would add exactly one other innovation which was good to that list, which is the index fund. But basically, I think financial innovation is broadly bad. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, a financial innovation that I like is like Venmo, you know? And I think that, um, like like speeding up the payment system in like traditional finance has been sort of, you know, pressured by crypto where like crypto sort of tells the story of like, I can just send you money on my phone right now without having to, you know, write you a check and wait three days. And I think there's been some, some of that pressure from crypto. Yeah. In in my mind, Venmo, in in my mind, Venmo is not financial innovation. I have to say this in my mind, in my mind, Venmo is, is just a failure of the U S central bank to, build a decent payment system no I, I i agree and and like and crypto puts pressure on that failure um to try to fix it and and is arguably you know in some ways better than even the fixed system but uh i also think like i like i just like financial innovation like i think that um you know uh having more cool financial markets is cool and i realize that nobody no normal people agree with me but like a lot of people in finance agree with me um one thing related to what you guys are talking about that I thought was striking about your piece was how crypto kind of piggybacks on the trust that everyone has in the regular financial institutions, exemplified by Celsius, which people gave their money to, knowing it wasn't a bank, but kind of believing it was anyway. Um, yeah. So yeah. even as it's not regulated, it's kind of like piggybacking. I, I love I love that whole thing in your piece about trust because there's such a deep paradox in the crypto world in that the whole edifice is built on mistrust and like we can transact with each other without knowing who each other are without trusting each other at all and it's a trustless ecosystem and isn't this great for reasons and then the minute that it becomes you know a minute basically around 2013 when i wrote my piece that was when you started having people like coinbase come along and say like trust us we will look after your crypto for you and we will actually be better at looking after it than you will if you try and keep it on your laptop, which is true. And um, and then everyone just started trusting institutions all over again, but they were unregulated institutions that probably didn't deserve that trust. And now that Coinbase is a publicly listed company that you know managed to get SEC approval to go public, which still kind of surprises me, um, I think people trust it even more. And I and I want to ask you, like, is that trust misplaced? I, 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 my impression is that Coinbase tries to be a sort of compliant, good citizen kind of public company, right? I, mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't think, like, my, my gut is that trusting in Coinbase is not too much, you know, more misplaced than, like, trusting, you know, Tesla to take your deposit and deliver you a Tesla. Um, is it more misplaced than trusting a bank? Like, potentially banks are like more regulated than crypto exchanges, but it's all the same, you know, like, like these guys are trying to do the right thing. But, on, but, but clearly it's, it, it was a very bad mistake to trust. Celsius, Celsius right? is crazy, so right? I mean, is, Celsius there, there, is like, right. So there is, there is this kind of, um, caveat emptor thing going oh, on, yeah. right? Like if I, if I walk up to a bank on the high street and I deposit a thousand dollars, I don't need to know anything about the bank. That's an information insensitive problem you know, product. And I know that that thousand dollars is safe. If I walk up to Coinbase and give them a thousand dollars, I need to know something about Coinbase in order to be able to say, I can trust you. And if I go up to Celsius about and give them a thousand dollars, I need to know something about Celsius to know, actually, this is risky. Yeah, how, I mean, how sophisticated do we think that uh, retail crypto investors are, though? You know, if it, if it has the veneer of traditional banking or, or, you know, it seems to have the same taxonomy, maybe that's where the trust comes from, even if it's yeah. not really. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is not sophisticated at all. I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, as I said, like, people have just sort of, like, imported over, like, their sort of instincts about trusting banks to things like Celsius that are just, like, 
the opposite of banks. And like Celsius says, like, don't trust the banks. Every, no, you don't trust anyone. Trust us, you know? And then like people do <laughs> for no reason at all and they lose their money. Um, no, I mean, like, I, I think that like in crypto, there, there are definitely like there is a, there are sophisticated people who sort of live in the DeFi, like decentralized finance world and who try to minimize trust and maximize like your own ability to audit the code and whatever. And to do that, you have to be, sophisticated and kind of a hobbyist, right? Like that has to be fun for you because it is, you're not going to audit the code if you're just like a sort of regular retail investor. And then like on the other side, there is like the regular retail investor crowd and the centralized finance crowd. And they're like, for it to work, it's just going to have to be more regulated, right? There's just going to have to be some sort of, and and obviously there's interest from the SEC and there's interest to some extent from banking regulators, but like there has to be some sort of like regulatory framework that will make it so that you are not just blindly picking the platform that has the best font and then you uh you know lose all your money the other thing is that like i think no, no. You, you pick the platform that has the cutest dog right. and then you lose and, and i think the other thing in crypto yeah. is like i think people have like like there's like a very libertarian ethos right and i think like even in traditional finance you know 10 years ago you could have people who were like libertarians who'd say we don't need regulation Repu- like market-based reputational cons- like issues solve all of this, right? Like a, a bank that isn't careful with your money will get a bad reputation and therefore no one will put their deposits in it. And it like, sounds like sort of like implausible and it sounds implausible in crypto and it is implausible in crypto, right? But like, I think that like, uh, uh, I think that there is a, a, a belief in the crypto world that reputation and like uh, market incentives solves a lot of this obviously it didn't for celsius and voyager i i love what the the number one thing i love the most about your piece is when you talk about this incredible word that's used in the crypto world to refer to reputation which is soul oh yeah (laughs) i mean i i wouldn't say that like that's like the the word for reputation in crypto i'd say that that's like a uh a um, proposal from from a few sort of crypto thinkers, including Vitalik Buterin, to like have some sort of like persistent uh, identity thing that is sort of bound up in crypto tokens on the blockchain, and they refer to it as soul bound tokens. And you have a soul, and it's just like it's a it's like it's an endlessly fun thing to write about because it's like like they <laughs> they say in their paper they're like a musician could issue a song from his soul. And like that sounds so good, you know. And it's like it's like a you know defined technical term about the blockchain. But you're like, oh yeah, a song from your soul. Can I say one more thing about the metaverse, just to go back for a second? Please do. I'm here to say I live in the metaverse, Felix. Wow. You live in the metaverse, Felix. I wake up every day and I in the real world and I have my coffee. Then I go and I open my laptop, and for the next eight or more hours, I'm in the laptop. I'm in Slack. I'm on Twitter. I'm in my email a little bit, living my digital life online all freaking day. And I think that happened to everyone on steroids in the pandemic and helped make crypto a bigger deal, helped make all this stuff a bigger deal. And I think like it makes sense what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. I mean, no one wants to live in his wall garden, as Matt calls it. But like, if you think we don't already live in a metaverse, you are incorrect. You are incorrect. I, as as I as I said in the introduction to my newsletter today, um, two places where I have lived a large part of my life just got taken over by a Gen X gazillionaire. Um, one of them was the United Kingdom with Rishi Sunak, and the other one is Twitter. Yep. And I have lived a lot of my life in and on Twitter, and that is that is true. Um, and I managed to do that very easily and very well without any crypto and i think <laughs> and i think and, and i think this is important right your point is absolutely true that we do have very vibrant very important digital lives and we l- spend huge amounts of time inve- in investing in our digital persona and our twitter you know avatars and all of this kind of stuff and you don't need crypto for any of it it was it's completely unnecessary so and to Matt's point, you probably don't need crypto for the Facebook metaverse thing either, Horizon or whatever it's called, right? So what is the point of crypto at that point? I think it's to add .eth to the end of your your name. C- congratulations on your .eth account, Matt. Oh, yeah. I couldn't get Matt Levine. <laughs> Someone else got it, I think, like, to squat on it for, like, 
for me, but I don't think it's like another Matt Levine, but I don't know. I want to talk one last thing because there was big news today. We were talking about trusting banks. Um, this is a big thing. Uh, there are, depending on how you count, roughly nine bulge bracket banks in the world. And one of them came out this week and said, we are breaking ourselves up and we're not going to be a bulge bracket bank anymore. This is like a voluntary breakup. Have you ever seen that before? I feel like all of the European bulge bracket banks have been saying things like that for years, <laughs> right? I think there's been, I mean, this is a particular, like this is a particularly real one, but like, I think there's been sort of a retreat from universal banking by some of the big European, you know, universal banks. Um, where they're like, we're going to specialize a little bit more. But This is a big one. The, the news is that Credit Suisse, which really is a big universal bank, was tried to be, it bought a massive U.S. investment bank called First Boston in 1990. Um, it has a huge wealth management arm, of course, because it's Swiss. And, um, and it does basically everything for everyone. Came out this week and said, we are breaking ourselves up into four parts. Um we're selling off a large chunk of, you know, financial innovation, securitization stuff to Apollo. We are setting up a bad bank with like emerging markets and stuff where we don't really want any of that business and we're just going to run it down. And then we are going to basically split the rest of us in two. We're going to have the asset management and the sales and trading in one part. And then we're going to take all of the real investment banking investment banking stuff, give it to Michael Klein, let him spin it off as this resuscitated first Boston name and it's going to be a boutique. It's going to be like Jeffries or Evercore or something like that. Like definitely not bulge bracket, um, which is something which you it's, it's something which you do if you are a sort of some of the parts investment banker, like Michael Klein. And you're like, if you add up the value of all the component parts of credit Suisse, they're worth much more than, the whole thing as a whole. So what we do is we split it up into its parts, sell them all off individually and create value that way. You only do that when the share price is in the toilet, um, which it is. And it fell even further this week. So? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So, um, Matt, uh, Emily has a question for you, which is like, why should we care? Yeah, that was the only one. I said, I wrote down why does matter to the normals? Like, I didn't even know Credit Suisse was an option when I am when I was choosing a bank, whenever it was. Well, I mean, it's not for you. It is in Switzerland. I don't think it is. You're not Swiss. Okay. So, yeah. So, why should normals care? It is if you're, if you're like a rich tax evader. No. <laughs> right. If you need a wealth manager, which I definitely... Uh, why should you care? Yeah. Why should people care about Credit Suisse breaking up? What does it tell us about, I don't know, the future of big banks or why do European banks not want to be big anymore? I don't know. Or does it not matter? I'm the wrong person to ask. I think, think, um, you know, Credit Suisse has had a string of scandals. I think, you know, to the point about trusting banks, it is is like, it's hard to run a big bank, you know? And like, I was thinking, Felix, you were talking about like the, the sum of the parts. Like, I think that the view is, and I wrote about this this week, there was a, a widespread view that like these parts add value to each other, right? That like being a wealth manager helps you in investment banking, being an investment bank helps you do sales and trading, all these things, you know, sort of send business to each other and the businesses work best together. And so the thing is worth more than the sum of its parts. And now credit Suisse is worth less than the sum of its parts. And the reason for that is that like these businesses also like bring danger to each other. Like if you have a trading business and the trading business loses a ton of money, then like your investment bankers don't get paid. Right. If you have a wealth management business and the wealth management business is like abetting some light frauds (laughs) by like selling some like green sill notes to its clients, then like the investment bankers don't get paid. Right. Like everything is, is like kind of like the worst business is what controls the narrative and also like the profits of the company. And so they're splitting them off so that like the worst business is less likely to affect the other businesses. Um, I don't know. I mean, like one thing it tells you about is like the sort of like risky and scandalous nature of banking, even, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, 14 years past the, the 2008 crisis where like it is just, it is hard to kind of get all the engines going together so that you can have a big bank where everything is adding value to everything else. And it is, you know, banks are sort of still in like long-term retreat from ambition, which 
in some ways, like, you know, I, I, used, I used to write this a lot, like the, the sort of broad, like regulatory goal after 2008 was to make banking boring again to make it so that it just wasn't that fun to be an investment banker, because if you're having too much fun in investment banking, you're probably creating a lot of risk somewhere. And I don't know, like this is like one more like kind of victory for that, that uh, outlook. This is one more place where like uh, banks are, are continue to be forced to be more boring and sort of take less risk and be less ambitious. I think that's right. And, and, you know, as you say, even the American banks like Citigroup are shrinking and being much less ambitious and it's been a long time since anyone used the word like global financial supermarket in an ir- a non-ironic sense you know like we are going to be able to bank anyone anywhere in the world and give them any product they need and like just be all things to all people that was a real vision you know 20 years ago and a bunch of banks put a bunch of money into trying to realize that vision and now i think the number of banks with that vision is exactly zero yeah, I mean, my old employer, Goldman Sachs, spent a few years recently uh, ginning up a retail business, which uh, you know is like the least sexy, risky form of like expanding your your approach to banking, right? It's like it's like we're going to give people <laughs> savings accounts, right? Like that's not that's not like that's not like the sort of like swashbuckling derivative trading that that I. I remember from Goldman, <laughs> but also like they're sort of retreating from that ambition anyway. They're like, yeah, that was, that was. As, as, as one of, um, New York's foremost Goldman Sachsologists, um, wh- what do you place the probability at that they will ever actually release this long awaited checking account? I don't know. There's a bank called Marcus, which, which, which included in, up until about a couple weeks ago, it included things like the Apple card, and now it's now the Apple Card has been spun off into a different division, and now it's just like these savings accounts, which are unbelievably boring. They're really boring. I have one. I like it. Matt has one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they'd get into checking accounts. Like, I don't, like a checking account, like that's like a you know. Then you're like a real retail banker, right? Then you got to like. Then Elizabeth Warren's getting mad at you because your overdraft fees. <laughs> right, you like you, you like charge one overdraft fee, like you're done. Like, <laughs> you can't do that if you you can't charge overdraft fees if you're Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I can guarantee you that if Goldman Sachs ever launches a, 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 a checking account, it will not have overdraft fees. There was um, some article about them doing consumer loans and like not foreclosing on them because they're like, we can't go into collections. We're Goldman Sachs. <laughs> exactly. Um, we should have a numbers round. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, yeah, my number is uh, 1,200. And it's uh, the number of times you toggle between apps, or most people toggle between apps during the day. For me, that sounds low. I feel like it's it's like four <laughs> times that. So but, much. Yeah. Um, Emily? Okay, my number. Oh, we're excited about this. I'm so excited about my number. I've been thinking about it for like two weeks. My number is 40. That's how many years ago Halloween was almost canceled. <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this is because, I don't know if you guys will remember this, but I'm, I guess I'm old now. So in 1982, in September, a lot of people died because Tylenol was tampered with in the United States, in the Chicago area. Someone opened up these capsules of Tylenol, put cyanide in them, and all these people died, I think like seven people. And it was like a huge panic and scare and Johnson & Johnson, which makes Tylenol and was the top-selling painkiller of that time, tanked it was a massive corporate scandal they had to recall all the tylenol it was wild now why am i telling you about this when it's about halloween because is, is this something about razor blades and apples yes. fentanyl and candy yes so people have always low-key like freaked out about halloween sadism i think it's called where like people are like everyone's tampering with the candy but it really reached like a total fever pitch in 1982 40 years ago that's my number people were like they can mess with the Tylenol. They can mess with anything. They can mess with our food. I don't. What are they going to do to the babies, the children? Keep the kids home. And like several towns even canceled trick-or-treating. And I remember because 1982, I was like prime trick-or-treat age. And I remember like after that year, like, and this could be I'm conflating with my age and growing up, but like trick-or-treating was not the same for a really long time. Like far fewer kids would go out because there was so much fear over the candy getting messed with, which P.S., it never gets messed with. It's just rumors. Yeah, the police department in my uh, hometown used to x-ray people's candy because obviously <laughs> <laughs> it's 
I have a fentanyl test kit for my candies this year. (laughs) You don't have to worry. You can eat all the little mini Snickers you want. You don't have to x-ray them or open them or anything. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. People go out on Monday and enjoy your trick or treating because it's safe. And so is, and, and I think so is Tylenol now. They don't make capsules anymore. And their comeback from that scandal is like taught in the business. I, I, I can I can tell you f- with, with 100% certainty that I have never died after taking Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He's alive. I see him right now. Um, my number is... 2.6%, which is a number which I feel maybe kind of got lost in the noise this week a little bit. But that was a reasonably decently healthy GDP growth in the third quarter, which came out this week. Um, all of the people talking about we're in a recession, like, kind of, no. We grew by 2.6% <laughs> in the third quarter. Like, it's very hard to be in a recession and grow at the same time. But yeah, just like, you know, worth noting but isn't there like don't people didn't people write things that were like if you look under the hood though it's actually because imports were down and if you look at the housing numbers they were really terrible so well i mean on the one hand housing is terrible right housing contracted at like a 26 percent rate or something in the third quarter but that just shows how healthy everything else is mm. if you can if you can if you can eke out a 2.6 percent growth rate even with housing imploding as much as it did that's pretty good. All right, Matt, take us home. Uh, my number is $1.5 billion, which is the amount, $1.5 billion. That's the amount that Forbes estimated Kanye West's or Ye's <laughs> fortune went down this week. Uh, oh, my God. I love he, wealth estimates. Yes. He uh, went on an anti-Semitic tirade and got his Adidas contract canceled. Um and which, which, by the way, he had been trying to get out of already unilaterally because he didn't like the way they were dealing with him. Like the whole, yeah. Thank you for this number. I appreciate it. Yeah, you and I, I think, have both written a lot about like how celebrity net worths get calculated. And as I wrote this week, like there's a there's like a crossover point where like at some point your net worth is kind of your bank account, and then when you get big enough, your net worth is like Forbes's estimate of your future earnings, and. Here, you know, he didn't lose any money, but he lost a stream of future earnings that was, you know, in like the $100, $150 million a year area. And so that got capitalized into a $1.5 billion number. So he was a billionaire. And now that has gone away and he's no longer a billionaire. And to the question of like, how did Elon pay for Twitter? You know, there's so much talk about how much money is Elon Musk worth, as though we know. know, We have no idea. We just met, like we we know some things like how many shares of Tesla he owns, but there's a lot of things we don't know, like how many Dogecoin he owns, and a lot of a lot of it is just made up. But yeah, I do need to quote Kanye West on Instagram because he's on all of the socials still. Um, he put this post up on Instagram saying, Ari Emanuel, I lost $2 billion in one day and I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so Kanye believes that he lost $2 billion in one day. I I, I think I'm, I'm, I mean, he did, right? I mean, he lost this, you know, he lost $150 million a year for 20 years, right? I mean, like, sure. <laughs> it's not untrue. <sighs> yeah. Lies to analyze and celebrity net worth estimates. Um, Matt, Thank you for coming on. It's been the a privilege for all of us. It's awesome to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, and everyone else, thanks for listening. It's, uh, next week, we have an, another great special guest. Rana Faruha is the great uh, columnist for the Financial Times who has a new book out called Homecoming, all about post-global economics. And send any questions for Rana to slatemoney at slate.com and we'll ask it so that's that's the thesis that's what we're talking about next week um, when we will see you back here on Slate Money Can I ask you how did you learn so much about crypto like where did you turn to figure it all out because it seems like you did there, there was there was that one footnote where you're like, oh yeah, and I went out with a bunch of DeFi guys. Like, you actually did report this story. I've talked to a few people. Like I don't want to over overstate my reporting. Like I like I did do like a little tour of like 
people who were like, hey, do you want to talk to us? I was like, sure, I guess. It's the week I'm ready about crypto. <laughs> uh, like if you want to understand like credit default swaps, like you can read like is the documents that first of all are written to be off-putting and secondly are like, you know, is the will charge you like $800 for them. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn about crypto, like everything is a white paper online, you know, like they're trying to get people to learn about crypto. Mm. Often they're terrible writers, which is why I can uh, get paid to do this. Add some value. But like sometimes they're not like Vitaly Buterin is like a, you know, really interesting, like generative writer where like he'll write a Reddit post and people will build an industry from it. Um, but uh no, I mean a lot of a lot of stuff is kind of available because a lot of things are sort of designed to be like open access, and so they have like you know documentation that explains them. One of the things that I got a lot after writing my big piece on Bitcoin in 2013 was the reason you hate Bitcoin so much is because you don't understand it, and if you really understood it, then you would like it. And my retort to that was always. I spent a bunch of time like reading Satoshi papers and trying to understand it. And I am not that dumb. And if after all of this amount of effort and writing 7,000 words on Bitcoin, I still don't understand it. That's a problem with Bitcoin. But I feel that we've reached a point now. And I think literally your article marks that point at which the you don't understand this retort just no, like you can't do that anymore. You can't. It's impossible for someone to read Matt Levine's forty thousand words on crypto and say, "Well, he just doesn't understand it," because you clearly do. And yeah, I think that that, that like the you don't understand an objection is is very frustrating because like people are like no, the value of Bitcoin is in this brilliant technology that you don't understand. And it's like it's just like, like it can't be true, right? Like the, the value can't be from the technology. It can't be like the cryptography is so elegant that it's worth a trillion dollars, right? It has to be the same reason that everything is valuable is like social acceptance. Like people want to buy it, right? And so like, I think that there is like, people who have put in the effort to understand like the, the, tech, the, the sort of technical aspects of it want to believe that that's where it, gets its value from but in fact it gets its value from people buying it right and like dogecoin like is not a brilliant technical innovation <laughs> although people will sometimes argue that and be like no no there's some good stuff in dogecoin but uh basically like dogecoin is like it's a good joke and so it went up to like you know billions of dollars and i think that that's like increasing the lesson of crypto is that like it is uh like a financial and economic technology more than i mean it's it's also a like you know cryptographic technology but like the thing that is driving it now is 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 economics rather than like you know cryptography right and you you actually say in your piece at one point i think that like cryptographers get very cross at the fact that everyone calls it crypto yeah i mean i don't know but like some of them on twitter do yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh excellent thanks matt all right thank you thank you bye slate plus